You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. All right, you guys, imagine with me that a series of cataclysmic earthquakes have struck up and down the west coast of the United States. Buildings have been toppled, economies have been flattened, huge massive holes and pits have opened up in the ground. Things are falling apart left and right all around us. And in the midst of that catastrophe, there's a man, a single man who had fallen into one of these pits. And he uh, wasn't able to climb his way out. The walls were too steep. It was sticky and muddy and damp at the bottom, and he was stuck in this pit. And there were seven people, seven men who walked by him on the day that he fell into the pit. The first of these men was an optimist. And when he saw the man in the pit, he said, you know, things could be worse. And then he kept on walking to hand out more platitudes to other folks in pits like him. There was a second person that walked by. This person was a pessimist. They looked at the man in the pit and they said, oh, listen, man, things are only going to get worse from here, let me tell you. And then he kept walking because it's really pointless to help the person in the pit. There's so many people in pits. I mean, you can't even really resolve anything after all. Third person that walked by was a wealthy businessman. He saw the man in the pit and he said, well, I mean, you've brought this upon yourself, really. I mean, you fell into the pit and that means it's kind of your job to get yourself out. So work a little harder. Climb your way out of the pit, and I promise you'll be out of there in no time. And then he walked into his workday thinking he had been quite inspiring to the man in the pit. The fourth person that walked by was a Buddhist. He saw the man in the pit, and he said, your pit is only a state of mind. Overcome your desires. Overcome your suffering, and you'll find it's just an illusion. And then they kept walking to the local temple to meditate for the next five hours. The fifth person that walked by was a college professor. He saw the man in the pit and he said, well, based upon my study and research of this situation, this is how the pit formed. And in reality, you didn't have much of a choice in the matter anyway. This is such a shame that this has happened to you. And then he continued on to lecture at the university on pits and how pits are formed. The sixth person that walked by was a religious philanthropist. He saw the man in the pit and he said, I'll pray for you. And then he dropped a few dollars down into the pit and kept walking to his religious service. And the seventh person that walked by was a political activist. They saw the man in the pit and they said, how tragic, how terrible this has happened to you. You know what? We've got some elections coming up soon. I'm going to get a sign and put it in my front yard that tells everyone else to care about people in the pit just like you. And I'm going to change my profile picture on my social media account to tell everyone else to care for people in the pit like you. And then they kept walking to their coffee shop because that's where they worked. Friends, when things fall apart around us, the world is always handing us responses, ways to respond to the pits in people's lives. And this story is only funny because it's also convicting. In many ways, these are the sorts of responses that the world gives us. And if we're being honest, these are the sorts of responses that we often buy into if we're not careful. We become predominantly concerned with our own stuff, with our own lectures, with our own money. We come up with excuses or uh, ways to explain why somebody is in the pit and it's really their fault. Or we just kind of throw money or platitudes at a problem and try to move beyond it. And here's the truth, you guys. 
the way we respond when things are falling apart around us reveals who we are. It reveals our character. It reveals our true allegiances. That's why the good Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said this, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in times of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. See, it's easy to look like we have integrity and morality when things are going real smooth. It's easy when life is prosperous to look like we've got things put together. It's when things fall apart, when we lose our jobs, when election results don't quite go our way, when a relationship isn't working, or when a pandemic strikes our culture, that's when we realize who we are. As it turns out, we often learn more about ourselves in the deserts than we do in the oases. We're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown called When Things Fall Apart. We're looking at the life and teaching of the prophet Jeremiah. And he preached a long time ago, thousands of years ago, to the nation of Judah. And he told the nation of Judah that if they didn't cease in their oppression of the orphan and of the widow and of the refugee and of the poor, and if they didn't stop running after the wrong things in the wrong ways, worshiping sex and wealth and power, well, then they were going to be overcome by a foreign empire called Babylon. And after years of this, we learned that most folks didn't listen to Jeremiah. And we're at the point in the narrative now, in this book, where what Jeremiah had predicted was going to happen is actually starting to happen. Babylon is closing in on the people of Judah. And things are starting to fall apart, which means the characters in this story are revealing to us who they really are. We're finding out two different responses in this story to things falling apart. One of them is supposed to be a cautionary tale to us. Don't be like this. And the other one is supposed to be a moral exemplar to us. An example of what it means to trust God when everything is crumbling. What it looks like to trust in his word and to live after his word. Because that's where we find true life. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it up with me uh, to Jeremiah chapter 38. We'll be reading uh, from verse 1 through 13 in Jeremiah 38. This is near the back of your Old Testament, if you're flipping there in your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have one, by the way, the words are going to be behind me on the screen. You can follow along there. Jeremiah chapter 38, starting in verse 1. Now Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jukal, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord. Those who stay in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But those who go out to the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, they shall live. They shall have their lives as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, this man ought to be put to death. He's discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. And king Zedekiah said, here he is. He's in your hands, for the king is powerless against you. So they took Jeremiah and threw him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. Now there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. Abedmelech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. The king happened to be sitting at the Benjamin gate. So Abedmelech left the king's house and spoke to the king. 
my Lord King, these men have acted wickedly in all they did to the prophet Jeremiah by throwing him into the cistern to die there of hunger, for there's no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Abedmelech, the Ethiopian, take three men with you from here and pull the prophet Jeremiah up from the cistern before he dies. So Abedmelech took the men with him and went to the house of the king, to a wardrobe of the storehouse, and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Abedmelech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, just put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up by the ropes and pulled him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many of the great action movies that have come out in our culture over the last few decades have the same scene in them. You guys notice this? Braveheart, 300, Gladiator, Independence Day, all of them have the same scene. It always goes something like this. The protagonists, so the good guys, are backed into a corner by the enemy, by the bad guys. And it seems like there's no hope left for them in the narrative. And then some person rises up and stands above the crowd on a pedestal. And he gives some, or she gives, some inspirational speech about how they need to fight the enemy, about how they need to fight back. And usually that speech has some sort of nationalistic or patriotic fervor to it. It's about fighting for the king or for the country, preserving their land and their nation. It's about self-protection. We're used to those sorts of inspiring speeches in our culture when things are falling apart. And usually these sorts of speeches have us versus them rhetoric. There's an enemy that we need to fight against and overcome, fight against and overwhelm. And crowds love these sorts of speeches. They flock to them. These are great ways to rally people together. And that's the exact opposite of what Jeremiah does in this passage. Jeremiah looks at the people of Judah, and he doesn't say fight them. He says surrender to them. Give yourselves over to the enemy. That breaks our paradigm. Like, this is not something that's inspiring to the people. But it's actually right in line with what Jeremiah has been preaching all along. See, he doesn't see Judah as the good guy that's been backed into the quarter. He sees Judah as, well, as much of a bad guy as anybody else. Because for centuries, they've been neglecting God's love and justice and mercy and peace. For centuries, they've been the bad guys. And this coming destruction was actually a way to restore these people to wholeness. Their political and religious establishments had become so drunk with power, so drunk with their influence, that the only way to restore these people is to start it back over, to start from the beginning, to break down this culture, to expose the wrong priorities, and then lead them in a new way. Which means any attempt to fight this destruction is actually to fight God's work to bring wholeness. Any attempt to win the culture war any attempt to take Judah back for God, any attempt to make Judah great in this passage would fail because the destruction of Judah was actually the tool of God's restoration. It was the starting point upon which life could actually begin again. Their nation and religion falling apart was the best thing for them because it exposed to them all of their wrong priorities. The only way in this passage, Jeremiah says, that Judah can find life is through death. Death to their own priorities. Death to their own power. Death to their own corruption. Life through death. Does that sound like something else you guys know? Maybe a guy named Jesus of Nazareth? In Matthew 16, 25, he says this. For whoever wants to save his life 
will lose it. Whoever wants to be self-protective, whoever wants to grasp on and hold on to life, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Death through life. Jeremiah and Jesus are both showing us that that's how we get the life that we're looking for. That well-being comes through serving your enemy. That real security comes only through enormous risk. And there's another correlation between Jeremiah's message and Jesus. Jesus's in his day. The people in power weren't fans of it. Nobody in power liked either of these guys. And that actually makes sense, right? If you're benefiting from corrupt structures, you're not going to want to see people call those structures out. And you're definitely not going to want to see someone saying, God is telling you to give up those structures and serve your enemy. That's not what people in power want to hear. And well, in this passage, we learn that the officials of the king hated this message, and they hated Jeremiah for it. And so they take Jeremiah, calling him a traitor the whole way. He's discouraging the soldiers, the representatives of the government's self-protection policy. And, well, he's not falling in line with their philosophy of Judah first. And it's interesting. In the words of these officials, right, they go to the king and they critique what Jeremiah is preaching. Notice they don't evaluate whether they've actually done morally right or wrong. They pivot the whole conversation away from moral right and wrong. They're not evaluating the terms that God has given them about justice and peace. They change the conversation to be about loyalty or disloyalty to the nation. That's what they've changed the conversation to. They're using patriotism and nation-first rhetoric as a smokescreen for their own accountability. They're not thinking about God's mercy and love and justice. They're thinking about loyalty to king and country. That is what is motivating them and driving them. Eugene Peterson articulates this well in his book on Jeremiah called Run With the Horses. He says this. They, the officials, kept trying to find ways to avoid the reality of judgment, to think in other categories than those of right and wrong, sin and irresponsibility. And one of their substitute ways of thinking was in terms of loyalty and disloyalty. Patriotism was used to muddle the sense of morality. Our beloved country is being attacked. We must be loyal to it. In times of crisis, it's not right to criticize your leaders. It's disloyal, an act of treachery. Using nationalist language is far easier than taking responsibility for righteousness in the nation. Far easier to shout patriotic slogans than to work patriotically for justice. Eugene, bring in the heat. And that resonates with us because the same response is just as common in our day when things fall apart. We double down on self-protection. We double down on protecting us and our tribe. And we neglect the people around us who are really in need. And that's what these officials do. They get rid of Jeremiah and they toss him into a cistern, which is a word we're not really used to hearing in our day, but it's actually a concept that we're fairly familiar with. It's basically an ancient reservoir, which we need lots of here in the desert. Right? And cisterns in the ancient world were pits that were dug into the ground to store emergency water supplies. We've got a couple pictures of some that they've dug up throughout history. Huge, deep, massive pits. And they were only to be used when the city was in dire straits when it was under siege. Because in situations like that, you usually couldn't travel outside of the walls of the city. You couldn't go to wells or other water sources, so you had to have the water sources close. So they toss him in there, and we also learn that this cistern is empty. Now, knowing that these sorts of cisterns were only used for emergencies should tell us, well, they're in dire straits right now. People have been flooding and flocking to get as much water as they can. That's why the pit is empty. The emergency fund is running out. And there's a subtle narrative irony in this. 
See, the cistern represented the city's ability to self-protect, all of their self-protection measures to self-sustain, and it's gone. And it hasn't changed anything. And Babylon's still coming. Things are still falling apart despite all of their seeking of self-protecting measures of safety and security separate from God. People have rushed to the means of self-preservation and nationalism, and they've rejected God's word from the prophet. And we know exactly what this is like, because in our day, things fall apart, and everyone does the same thing. They rush to self-protect. Everyone hurries around concerned about doing what's best for them and theirs. And so they flood to grocery stores to stock up for themselves. And they tune in to TV stations that are full of despair and cynicism and anger. They jump to blaming the other person, to pointing the finger at someone who's caused this all to happen. And they instinctively take up arms to fight and protect. The worldly response to things falling apart often involves being driven by fear, not by faithfulness to God, not by faithfulness to God's way of being in the world. That's exactly what's going on here. And so God's prophet gets pushed out of sight. God's word gets rejected in favor of the self-protective word of the government. And Jeremiah gets tossed into a dark, dark place. He finds himself in a pit, darkness and dampness all around him. And in chapter 37, we also know that he had just been beaten by these same officials. So he's been wounded, he's been abused, he's been despised and rejected by those in power, and now he's cast into the mud, sinking lower and lower and lower. But just when it seems like we're at the end of the line in this story, just when it seems that God's voice has returned void and there's no hope for the prophet, Jeremiah hears another voice ringing out. And very suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, a character appears here. His name's Abedmelech. At least that's what he's called in the story. It's likely that this is actually a title, not a name. Abedmelech means servant to the king. And that's actually kind of the point. We don't know his name because it's not as important. This could be anybody. That's the point of this passage. In fact, Abedmelech is the last person you'd expect to show up here. See, he's a foreigner, not an Israelite. They say that three times in the text. He's an Ethiopian from the heart of Africa. This is a black man showing up in Israel, in Judah. He's an outsider in this place. The one who trusts the voice of God from the prophet is not the religious and ethnic insider. He's the religious and ethnic outsider. And the whole point of the story is to intentionally contrast the officials of the king and their response to the response of Abednelech. The narrative is showing us what it looks like to trust God when things fall apart, what it looks like to be faithful to his way rather than faithful to our self-protective instincts. And there's three characteristics that we see of Abedmelech here in this passage. We see that he's responsive, we see that he's resourceful, and we see that he's resolute. Responsive, resourceful, and resolute. First, responsive. Right away in verses 7 and 8, he hears about Jeremiah and he jumps into action. He doesn't waste any time. And he does that in a culture, remember, where the public opinion is shouting to him, protect yourself and protect your country. They're shouting to him not to go and sacrifice for the other. They're shouting to hoard things. And Abedmelech takes a huge risk. He goes to the king to talk about getting Jeremiah out. Now, who just threw Jeremiah in the pit? The king. He is taking a risk. He could end up in the same place as Jeremiah but he has a vision for the heart of God and the most vulnerable. And so he jumps into action. He moves with compassion to the one in the pit, the one who's been rejected and harmed by the conditions of the world. 
You guys, when things fall apart in the world around us, our first response should never be, how can I orient my life around protecting me and mine? That's not our first response as followers of Jesus. Our first response is, who are the most vulnerable? And how can I move to serve them? How can I care for them? That's what Abedmelech does here. He's responsive. Knowing the voice and character of God will lead us to become responsive sort of people. We don't just talk the talk. We walk the walk. And that's huge for us Christians to remember because Christians love to talk the talk all the time from pulpits in spaces just like this. We love to speculate about the reasons that might have produced the pits around us, or we love to diagnose the problems of other people. We love to stand above the pit, shout platitudes into it, or throw money into it. But that's not our job, friends. Our job is to get our hands dirty. Our job is to get into the mud and to help people who are there. There is no such thing as faith in God that's not matched by action towards the people whom God loves. There is no such thing. Come on. There is no such thing as faith in God that's not matched by actions towards the people whom God loves, which just so happens to be everyone. And God, in this passage, is using a person to help another person. That's another important thing here that's subtle but crucial for us to remember. See, the whole point of the scriptures is that God is calling humanity to partner with him to bring flourishing into the world. Oftentimes, we think about and pray about miraculous things that God will do on high. It's good to pray for miracles, not a bad thing. But oftentimes, our opportunity is to answer the very prayers that people are praying around us, that we can actually be the person who steps in and answers those prayers. God is always working in and through people. It's very rare that God intercedes from on high. He usually intercedes through normal, everyday people serving their neighbors. That's how God works. That's the whole point of the scriptures. And so often in our lives, we draw this stark line between the spiritual and the physical or the material. That's what our culture does all the time. Think about it. When I use the word spiritual or describe someone as spiritual, what do we often think of? Meditation, right? People who uh, kind of rise above their culture. People who are above the physical world, not actually involved in it. But that's the precise opposite of Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality is about connection with God and connection with people. Those two things are interwoven. There's a reason that Jesus summarizes the law by saying, love God and love your neighbor. Those two things can't be separated in Jesus' mind. We can't separate them in ours. There's a reason that Jesus does this because it's naming the material and the physical as infinitely important because God has done so. And we ought to do the same. And so our spirituality is earthy. It gets into the dirt and the sweat and the emotions and the workings of the real world out there. It's never escapist. It's never meditating above the physical world. And so Abedmelech is reminding us that when things fall apart, we become people who respond to those in the pit. We don't ignore them. We don't pass by them. We jump into action. But it's not just that he's responsive. It's also how he responds that's important here. He's resourceful. Notice, when he hears the news, he doesn't run straight to the pit to pull Jeremiah out. He's more wise and shrewd than that. He's wanting to consider the best way to help his neighbor. How can he actually make a a lasting impact, a sustaining influence in this situation? See, because he knows that if he just runs over and helps Jeremiah out, he is countering the king's latest order. It's more than likely that the king, in order to hold up his authority, will have to punish Abednelech. So that's not the best way to work. Instead, he goes straight to the king. 
And notice how he does it. He doesn't blame the king when he shows up. The king is the one who put the order in. He is definitely at least partially to blame, but he doesn't do it because he knows that if he does that, he will lose any credibility in the king's sight. So he has to figure out a way to work within the broken systems around him. And he does that by pointing the blame at the officials. A nice move here. Because Zedekiah, the king, can now distance himself from responsibility. He can say, oh yeah, those wicked men over there did this. So he's learning how to best come alongside the broken people who are around him. That's really important. That's really resourceful. And we're called to do the same sort of thing. You guys, we know that not everyone out there in the world will have the same goals as us as believers. We know that that's going to be true. We know that not everyone out there has the same picture of the imago Dei, the image of God in all humans. We know that there's going to be difficulty working with those sorts of people, but we are not called to fight them. We're called to come alongside them so that flourishing can come. We're called to partner with them and be resourceful in how we do it. And notice also, he's deeply aware of the conditions of his culture and of the city. When he shows up, he appeals to the king because he's aware that they're running out of bread. How does he know they're running out of bread? Because he's been spending time with the vulnerable and knowing what's going on in their lives. He knows they don't have enough food. And he knows that Jeremiah, in one of the most vulnerable positions, definitely will be out of food soon. He is really deeply aware of the conditions of the city that he lives in. We need to be the same sort of way, friends. When we respond to the pits in people's lives, we need to always understand the conditions of their lives first. You can only start with loving people once you've understood people. Amen. If you haven't understood people, then you haven't loved them. You've stepped in and dominated. You haven't actually listened to their conditions. Yeah. Central for us. And then, I love this, by the way. This is great. I'm not feeling great. Come on. Jeremiah also, I'm sorry, Abed-Melech also helps Jeremiah out of the pit by being resourceful with his tools. Do you notice he went and grabbed old rags? Kind of a random thing, right? Why? Well, because he knows the state of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was just beaten, bruised, bloodied. Now he's been tossed into the mud. And he knows that ancient ropes, they're not like ropes that we have. They're frayed, they're sharp, they're prickly. If he just wraps that rope around Jeremiah, he'll probably dig into some of those wounds. It probably won't feel great. He might actually cause more harm than good. And so he thinks ahead and evaluates the tools that he has at his disposal to help his neighbor. And then he says, I'll use those tools. And what's amazing is that those tools are old and seemingly useless, which is another sermon. But that's amazing. <laughs> old tools that God uses to restore and bring life to another person. Abed-Melech has identified the conditions of his neighbor, and now he understands that he has to use whatever is at his disposal to help. And we have to remember, friends, that no matter the tools we have, we have the same responsibility. There's no bench players when it comes to the Christian life. There's no bench players when it comes to faithfulness to God. There's no one, because of their social station or their income or their particular profession or skills, there's no one that can't respond to their neighbor in the pit. Every single one of us has unique abilities and unique contexts that provide us exactly what we need to participate with God in helping and loving our neighbors. And so the question is not, what do I have or what don't I have? The question is, am I willing to give what I have to God? Am I willing to allow even the most minute things, even the old and raggedy things in my life to be used by God to love others? And so Abedmelech isn't just responsive, he's also resourceful. He understands his own time, his own place, his own culture, and he's wise and shrewd with how he uses his tools. But there's a third thing that we know about Abedmelech in this passage. He's also resolute. See, preparation is great. Responsiveness is great. 
But when we finally get to the work itself, it can be hard. It can be a grind. And we know that that's happening here. It's subtle, but it's definitely happening. I mentioned the rope. That's going to be hard to pull on your hands. It's going to wear on your hands. You're going to get blisters. This is going to be a challenging situation. Jeremiah is in the mud, right? It says he's stuck in the mud. So there's actually forces working against Abedmelech as he's trying to help Jeremiah out. There's opposing forces that often come into our way when we love our neighbors. And he's got a team of people he has to work with. My text said three. Your text might have said 30. That's just based on uh, some old different Hebrew manuscripts. But either way, he's working with a team. Anybody work with a team? Work with other humans? It's hard. There's a lot of resistance that can happen when you work with other people. This is hard, laborious work, and it can wear on us. I can imagine what's going on in Abedmelech's mind here. You all know that feeling when you're working hard and in the middle of your week you're just spent and exhausted and it seems like nothing matters. It might be going on for Abedmelech here too. I wonder if he's thinking, what if the rope breaks? What do we do then? And even if we get Jeremiah out, will, will this really change things? Will my work actually really make a difference with all these pits around us? I mean, I'm probably not even the right guy for this job. The king probably has somebody way stronger. There's three or 30 guys here. One of them might be smarter than me. I don't even have a bachelor's degree in pit rescue. I don't have the qualifications. I'm not the person for this job. In the middle of those thoughts, Abedmelech remains resolute. He doesn't stop because of his disqualifications. In the middle of resistance, he keeps pulling. In the middle of his own doubts, he keeps pulling. In the middle of limited resources, he keeps pulling. In the middle of a world that's falling apart, he keeps pulling. Why? Because he trusts that God will use even the smallest of faithfulness to transform his neighbor. He trusts that God will use all of his pulling to bring life and peace and flourishing. He trusts that even one person saved from a pit is evidence of God's transformative power in the world. So in this room right now, if you're a teacher, keep pulling. And if you're a nurse, keep pulling. And if you're a lawyer, keep pulling. And if you're an architect, keep pulling. And if you're a therapist, keep pulling. And if you're a financial advisor or a business person, keep pulling. Students, keep pulling. Workers on campus, keep pulling. Friends and moms and brothers and sisters, keep pulling. Because we have a promise, friends. It's a promise that's echoed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, resolute, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. He says that in the midst of a passage about resurrection. He knows that through death, God will bring life. There is nothing that can stop God from bringing redemption and restoration. So keep pulling. Friends, there's no wasted effort in God. There's no unnoticed pulling of the rope. There's only ever redemption and life. And it's important to note, this is also really subtle in the narrative, but Abedmelech doesn't just keep pulling because he's so great and moral. That's not his motivator here. He's not superior to anyone else. He actually keeps pulling here because he knows what it's like to be in the pit. See, Jeremiah has been made an outsider by his culture and cast into the pit. Abedmelech has grown up an outsider his whole life. He's an Ethiopian. He's a foreigner. He knows what it's like to be outcast by his society. And that little facet of the story gives us a glimpse of maybe the most important thing. You guys, we don't pull because we're so great or special. 
We don't pull because we have some great superior morality to the world around us. We pull because we know what it's like to be in the pit, and we know somebody has pulled us out of that pit. We pull because on the cross, Jesus pulled for us. We pull because in the resurrection, Jesus lifted every one of us out of the pit. You guys, the Bible is not a story of supremely moral people doing supremely moral things. It's a story of broken outsiders who have been in the pit and who pull others out because they themselves have been pulled out first. This is the story of a God who's responsive, a God who hears and knows our needs. It's the story of a God who is resourceful, who uses everything at his disposal to bring life. And it's a story of God who's resolute in Christ, who will stop at nothing to redeem and restore all things. It's that story that shapes us, that story that guides us in everything we do. So let's learn from Abednelech. Let's grab our ropes, wherever they are. Let's grab our rags, whatever they are. And let's all go to the pits around us because we ourselves have been pulled from them before. Let's pray, friends.